2015, I was diagnosed with late-stage Lyme disease. And at that point, it was like I had days where I couldn't really swallow. There were lots of days where I couldn't really walk or like lift my arms or like speak a full sentence or I would be saying a sentence and then just kind of like lose the rest of the sentence because I was having so many cognitive issues. That was Esme Weijun Wang, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 95. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, that's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. Even if it's confusing or messy, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we're embarrassed about it, we tell the truth. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You won't find any 10-day, six-step life hacking plans for anything. I'm totally over that approach, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which, warning, often means we use adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. This show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. You're the best, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk and honesty into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small fun in-person event series that kicks off in London in early August. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Esme Weijun Wang. Esme is the award-winning author of The Border of Paradise. 
She was named by Granta as one of the best of young American novelists in 2017 as part of a once-in-a-decade list that they put out. And she is also the recipient of the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize for her forthcoming essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias. At her website, The Unexpected Shape, she provides useful resources for ambitious people living with limitations. In this episode, Esme returns as one of only two repeat guests on this podcast. I adore her writing and her message, and it was such a treat to talk about what's been happening over the past year in her career, because it is a lot, a lot of exciting things. After 41 rejections, her debut novel was bought and published, and she shares stories about how that felt, about the power of stubbornness and believing in your own work, and how to self-promote without being sleazy. She also talks openly about living with a chronic and disabling illness, one that has yet to be fully understood or treated, and she shares how she pursues her ambitions while dealing with daily limitations. If you're interested in hearing some real talk about writing, productivity anxiety, mental health stigma, being a child of immigrants, and so much more, you will love this episode. I certainly did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Esme, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Nicole. This is great. You are, I was trying to count this morning, I think you are the second repeat guest other than Kate Grace that has been here and so much has happened for you in the last year that it is such a treat to get to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been quite a wild ride since I, I was last on the show. So hopefully this will be a good conversation to share with people. Tell me one of the most fun things that you have done so far this year. I think the most fun thing was after the Granta news came out, and we'll probably talk a little bit about what that was, but so as a part of that whole announcement, we had a beautiful, amazing party at the New York Public Library, and there was there were drinks and canapes and schmoozing with people in the New York literary scene and just like literati and getting to meet all of these amazing writers that I had admired for so long. It was that was definitely the most amazing moment so far of 2017. And I think will probably remain the best evening of my year. I remember seeing pictures and like just little recaps of that on Instagram. It looked like an incredible experience. It was so fun. I I was so nervous and I was afraid that I would be nervous about meeting all of these really important writers and meeting these famous editors and things like that. And I was really afraid of being anxious and especially socially anxious. I think that's a big thing for me too, but it, it was just really fun and I'm really grateful for that. So social anxiety, that's definitely something that I deal with sometimes as well. How do you manage that? Or, you know, when you're feeling that way, obviously you went and you had a, you know, a wonderful time anyway, but how does managing that look for you? So interestingly for me, social anxiety. So I I tend to have what I call like a more umbrella anxiety that has manifested in many ways over time. And it it, um, it's different depending on the occasion. So I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I've had, I have and continue to have panic attacks. I've been diagnosed with PTSD. So it's like anxiety is something in my life that 
shows up in different ways. And so for me, social anxiety is less about being anxious in the moment of a social encounter and more about rehashing every single thing I said or did <laughs> during a social encounter afterwards. So it's it would be very common and normal for me to go home after that near a public library party and then to spend like four hours rehashing every single thing I said and even to become tempted to call or contact or email people I interacted with that night to say, I'm so sorry I said that one thing <laughs> that likely that person didn't remember at all. Um, but that that didn't happen. But that is the way that tends to um, exhibit itself. So for me, dealing with that looks like talking to people close to me afterward, um, trying to get more of a reality check. So this is the thing I said. Does it make sense for me to contact that person and apologize? Most of the time, the answer is no. They probably do not remember I said that thing at all. Also, the thing I said was probably not as horrible or offensive as I thought. Um, but yeah, that, that tends to be the way my social anxiety exhibits itself. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that feeling of the, you know, post interaction obsession. And I think what you shared about discussing it with someone else and getting a reality check, you know, once you go down, like down the spiral, down the spiral, and you've obsessed about something so much in your own mind, you know, it becomes so warped that it's it sounds silly, but it's so helpful to have someone else be like, No, no, that's that's fine. You don't need to apologize for that. Yes. And if like me, you've actually had the experience where you did reach out to the person and, you know, email them or call them or whatever and, and apologize. You know, it's happened to me enough times or I've done it enough times that I've learned that every single time, actually, the person did not remember the thing that I, that I was obsessing over. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I've learned from past experience that it is largely uh, something that I've built up in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the time of this recording, what are we towards the end of July, more than halfway through the year? You mentioned that night as a standout. But when you look ahead at the rest of the year, what do you hope that it feels like? What feels most important to you right now? So you know how people get really excited about uh, like planning the next year toward the end of the year, like in December. And there often is this thing or this thing in the personal development world that is choosing a word of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so for 2017, my word of the year was flourish. But having reached the midpoint of 2017, I've changed my word, or at least I've picked a new word for the second half of the year. And the new word is actually focus at this point. Okay, what does that mean to you? I think that a lot of it had to do with the grant and news coming out in April. So the whole kind of like first half of the year was building up to that very exciting time in my life. And the second half of the year is much more about finishing my second book, which is due at the end of um, next month, approximately, or a little bit after that. And so after all of that celebration and that kind of like flourishing and doing a lot of that blooming and growth and seeing my career change, now it's like back to work. You have a second book that's due by fall of 2017 that's coming out in fall of 2018, and it's time to really focus. Mm -hmm. So that 
I'm totally familiar with that idea of, you know, picking a word for the year. And I agree with you. That's very big in sort of the end of year personal development circles, for sure. Yes. Um, Was there a specific moment or thing that happened, you know, maybe it was, you know, around the halfway point of the year where you realized that the word that you had picked, you know, this idea of flourishing had sort of served its purpose and it was time to make a change or a shift focus, I guess? Yeah, it wasn't so much thinking, well, okay, I think that two things happened simultaneously that really caused this to happen. One was that I really felt like flourish wasn't, I think I I was feeling like it was kind of, it had served its purpose, as you said. So I had a bracelet made at the beginning of the year that says flourish on it. And wearing it just didn't feel as important. Seeing the word, being reminded of the word wasn't as important. It wasn't so much any more reminder that I needed to keep with me. On the other hand, something that I was constantly thinking about and am still thinking about every single day is this need to focus, focus, focus. And I found myself drawn to like desktop wallpapers that say focus. And I would write focus like on my daily journal, just like these journal planner pages that I do, I would write focus. So I I started to feel like the word focus was becoming important. And so somebody who is really, um, who was really important in my life in bringing the whole word of the year thing into my life was Susanna Conway, who is um, somebody who is in this kind of personal development sphere. And she, this year came out with um, an unravel your year mid-year booklet. So every year she tends to come out with an unravel your year at the end of the year for the coming year. But this was the first year that she did one at the midway point. And I was really excited about that. But something that she had mentioned in this new booklet that came out, I think only a couple of weeks ago, was that you could pick a new word for the midway point um, for the rest of the year. And it was at that point that I was like, all right, I've been wanting to pick a new word. And here's the perfect opportunity Isn't it funny how sometimes we can keep ourselves caged in by, you know, I said this was going to be my word for the whole year and I have to stick with it. (laughs) I know. And it's so arbitrary too. Like who said that it needed to be like for, I I don't know, time is a construct, et cetera. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this might seem like a strange pivot, but it's something that I have found myself wanting to ask you more about, especially when you share, um, childhood photos or photos of your mom, like all these beautiful things that you put on Instagram. Tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? I was born in the Midwest. My parents were Taiwanese immigrants and they came and lived in Michigan um, because my father was getting his master's in computer engineering at Central Michigan University. And so I was born there and my parents were in their early 20s. And we lived there only for six months, and then we moved to Northern California. And that was the very beginning of um, the whole Silicon Valley thing. So um, they were making a decision actually between moving to New Jersey and moving to Northern California. And it, I think it was a, a good choice they made <laughs> to move to Northern California as with this like computer engineering degree in the 80s. So I grew up in Northern California in this, so first in San Jose, um, which is a large city 
about like an hour from San Francisco. And I lived there for mm, like most of my like early childhood. And then we moved to this suburb that was a very white suburb, definitely less diverse than San Jose and lived there until I graduated from high school. I would say um, in terms of my childhood, it was, I don't know, I, I think that when I speak to a lot of um, children of immigrants, there are a lot of common experiences. And I, I really have a lot of those. So one part is, especially being the older sibling or the, the eldest sibling, um, I have a younger brother. Um, I got to experience all the weird experiences that happen to children of immigrants. So um, having parents that don't really understand the customs of the new country. So for example, just like there are some silly things like I, um, like my mom uh, was told to like do the Valentine's card thing when I was in elementary school. And instead of giving me Valentine's Day cards for all the kids in the class. She just gave me one. <laughs> and I just, you know, brought that one card. But that, you know, that's not how that works. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, or there was a time when I was uh, told to bring a bathing suit to something. And she just didn't pack me anything because to her, a bathing suit is a thing that you wear when you're bathing and you're naked when you're bathing. So I just she just didn't understand that part either. So, you know, small things like that. But then also things uh, such as being incredibly overdressed for occasions like birthday parties. This is something I've spoken to a lot of children of immigrants or immigrant children um, about. Uh, being really overdressed is really common. I think in part because immigrants want their kids to, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like wanting them to look nice or or what, but um like I had, I had a friend who uh, was a Russian immigrant, and he, his parents like dressed him up in like a tiny like suit or like a tiny tuxedo for a birthday party when he was in like third grade, and he showed up completely overdressed and ended up just like leaving in tears. It was just like this very sad but also kind of sweetly funny story, but one that I could really relate to. So. Uh, being the being the child of immigrants was really, I think, a big part of my childhood, especially considering I did live in such a white town for most of my growing up. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm sure you have a thousand of those, you know, maybe more like funny stories or, you know, things that you said a lot of other folks from similar backgrounds can relate to. But being a child of immigrants, you know, growing up and navigating, it sounds like majority white spaces, how do you feel like that shaped you or continues to shape you now as an adult? Mm, that's a really good question. I, in so many ways. I mean, I think that for a lot of my growing up, I really wanted to fit in as like a a white person, even though that was not really possible. So, for example, I, uh, you know, I was really involved in zines when I was younger, like especially I started when I was a teenager and um, through when I was in college, I would do zines. But I had this pseudonym, this 
very white sounding pseudonym for a long time because I didn't want people to know that I wasn't white. I thought people would read my work differently or not be interested in my work if they knew that I was white. Um, I even thought about that when I married my husband, who who is white. Um, he grew up in the New Orleans area. He's He grew up Catholic. He's just like a white Southern gentleman. But I thought about taking his last name when I got married in part because I thought that having his last name as my writerly persona might help me in the literary industry. Um, and so I think there were just things like that were a lot of wanting to pass, which is not really possible as somebody with like two Chinese parents, two Taiwanese parents. Like I can't pass as anything other than East Asian really. Um, but wanting to pass in some way um, was definitely a big theme as I was growing up. Do you remember like a specific time where that changed and no longer was a desire? I mean, with uh, the election of Donald Trump, um, I actually, uh, not long after he was elected, I spent, I think, up to half an hour looking in the mirror trying to figure out if I could pass as white. Um, and this wasn't, you know, obviously not very long ago. Um, but I remember just thinking like, it would be much easier if I could pass as white. And I just remember like standing in front of the bathroom mirror, looking at myself, really trying to convince myself or trying to see if it was possible to pass as white. Um, because I felt that and continue to feel that this is not a great time to not be white in the United States. Yeah, you are not wrong. <laughs> yeah, so um, in, in terms of like ha feeling more comfortable as um, an Asian American person, like I think that has changed, but in relationship to the outside world, you know, things are things are both different and not different. Mm-hmm. So it seems, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but from things that you've shared, it seems like you have a close relationship with your mother? Yes, um, I'm close to my mom. I didn't always used to be. I had kind of a rough relationship with her as I was in my childhood and especially when I was an adolescent. But that improved a lot when I was in college um, during a very difficult time in my life. And we have been very close ever since. I ask because, I mean, totally selfishly, my head's been here a lot lately, um, just stuff that I've been working on with my own mother and, you know, for us trying to sort of repair some damage that had been done to our relationship in the past. And just this idea of how to build an adult relationship, you know, with your parents, I think is something mm -hmm. that I hardly really ever hear talked about I don't know maybe it's just me but that that how do you how do you do that right kind of getting over anything like you said from childhood or adolescence and making progress and being more I mean I guess equals isn't necessarily the right word but it's just an interesting dynamic to sort of build an adult relationship with your parents yeah I feel like this is a conversation that I would love to hear more about um I so in terms of growth with my parents uh growth with my relationship with my parents my relationship with my mother is something that I've been healing for a much longer period of time. It really started when I was a freshman at Yale and 
we were forced, essentially forced to live together. She moved out from California because I was no longer allowed to be on campus. And we lived in a little apartment together for a semester. Um, My dad, who, um, without getting like super into it, was not around a lot when I was a kid and also did some not so great stuff when I was an adolescent and, um, and a little bit older. And so while I love my father very much, that relationship I feel is one that I'm still trying to trying to heal in a in a more conscious way these days. And it is hard. There, I feel like, you know, uh, you and I are quote unquote adults, although I still have trouble thinking of myself as like a grown-up like I still refer to uh, other adults as grown-ups whereas I don't think of myself as a grown-up even though I'm 34 years old um yeah so I think of like my relationship with my father as a grown-up like as one that I'm still working on but have have trouble like navigating like how do I do that and at the same time you know um, my parents are getting older and I definitely don't want um you know, them to, you know, to put it really bluntly to die without, without having gotten to a certain amount of, of healing with, with that. Yeah, you just articulated so beautifully what I've been feeling. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's an age thing. They've both had some health scares, you know, in the Mm -hmm. last couple of years, as folks do as they get older. And I it was honestly, it happened for me about a month ago, sort of not based on anything. It was just this like really sudden realization that hit me. I was driving home. I was driving back to 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 Bend from Sacramento, you know, which is like a seven plus hour drive. And I had this moment, I'd been thinking about my mom a lot lately. And it was just this like very strong feeling that if she dies, and I don't try to, you know, repair what was broken, or that that would be the regret of my life. And it was just like, I'm driving, I'm sobbing, right? I'm having this like really intense reaction. And I called her and I was like, if I don't say all these things now, I'm going to lose my nerve. And it's been a really good last month. But I am always just curious about how other people navigate that space. Because it's one of those things that I think is sort of alluded to, but not really talked about a lot. So I appreciate you sharing some of that. I do think it's amazing, though, that you had that drive, and you actually made the move to call your mom and to talk about that. And because I think a lot of people have that kind of thought and, you know, might have that kind of thought and think, yeah, that would, it would be really, it would be a real bummer if I didn't repair my relationship with, um, you know, my mom or my dad or, you know, so-and-so and, um, but then might not go ahead and make that call. And so I, I think that's really great that you did. And do you feel like, do you feel like you've been able to kind of navigate your relationship with her after that phone call? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty recent. And it wasn't like that was the first time the thought ever entered my mind. And I acted on it, right? Like, this is something that I've been thinking about, I think, well, probably subconsciously for, you know, the better part of a decade, right? So it's like not this wasn't just like an overnight situation. Um, But for whatever reason, And, you know, enough things just came together in that moment where I thought, okay, you know, for what, you know, one of those things, it was like, I don't know, cosmic intervention or whatever. It was just now you have to make this phone call now. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. And it wasn't like we had a bad relationship. It was just, you know, this could, how much time do you have? This could be a whole other situation, but just some dynamics that had been in place for 15, 17 years and things that, you know, the longer time goes on and you don't address things, you know, can kind of fall into this pattern of a relationship that is sort of superficial. Um, 
And yeah, so I'm going there. I think I mentioned before we started recording that I have to have the season wrapped up by Thursday because I'm going out of town and I'm going to go see them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been really good and helpful, not easy. You know, I said a lot of things. She said a lot of things. We're going together to her therapist when we're down there. It's not, again, not like an overnight thing, but I feel like whatever weight was on me that I at least took responsibility for being like, I'm not okay with not trying, you know? Yeah. And, and I think the fact that you mentioned that you're going to her therapist is really big too, because as much as it might be nice to try to navigate healing these relationships ourselves. Like as much as that might be a nice thought, it's definitely um, probably more helpful to have somebody who can mediate the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. I will report back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so switching gears entirely, how did you feel the day that your book came out? Oh my gosh. Uh, so my book came out. So the pub date was supposed to be April 12th, 2016. And so that, that date will always stay with me as like the official pub date, but there were so many other dates because, uh, like for example, Amazon tends to ship books, not on their pub date. Like they tend to ship them early, um, which really tends to peeve, writers and publishers all over the world and country. Um, But so then there's the date that Amazon ships your book. And then uh, there was the day that I saw my book in its final form and got to hold it, which was at AWP, which is the biggest uh, writers conference in the country. And that happened um, a couple weeks before April 12th. So I, I remember going to the booth of my publisher and them giving me a copy and just like holding it. And that was technically when the book was first available to be sold um, in its final form. So there was that, that day and that day will remain special in my mind. So yeah, there, there are a couple of um, those kind of the day the book came out days, actually, it was kind of like a, like an ongoing process of the book coming out. Um, But in general, I think um, it had been so long and it had been such a wild journey and I was just endlessly relieved to finally have it out in the world. I was so happy that people were going to be able to read it and buy it and it it was just such a nice feeling. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I feel like Something that tends to happen to me is that, especially something that I've been either looking forward to or working toward or building up toward for, you know, a pretty long time, obviously in your case, years and years, that I can often feel sort of a sense of letdown or disappointment. I mean, not to be like a total bummer, but you know, that it's like I put so much expectation on something and then it happens and I'm like, wait, what do I do now? Or so I I don't know. I don't know if you experienced any of that. Well, I feel like most of the writers I've talked to um, about debuts, um, have had a similar take. They, most of them have shared with me stories of the day their book coming out being like the biggest bummer of their lives, essentially. And I heard this about, uh, the Granta thing too, um, afterward, you know, people telling me, don't be surprised if you feel depressed for a while afterward, which actually kind of did happen. Um, but the actual, what, whereas the actual events, 
and around that um, were actually very exciting and happy. It was the kind of post um, experience that was more of a more something that was full of sadness and um, like almost like a when you're a little kid and you're really excited about your birthday and then your birthday is over and you have to wait like however long for your birthday to come around again. Um, so yeah, I, I personally did not experience a lot of the whole, um, like, oh, having a book out, like, wasn't what I thought it was going to be like kind of experience, which a lot of people do. Um, I did find it very much relief and very satisfying, but, um, there have been other aspects of having a book come out that are more challenging. And I think ones that uh, people do and don't talk about things like uh, I remember I had a, I took a workshop with Danny Shapiro um, in the beginning of 2016. And while I was getting a book signed by her, I asked her, well, I, I got to speak with her a little bit and I told her, that my book was coming out that year and asked her if she had any advice. And she told me something to the effect of like, nothing is ever going to feel like enough. Um, like you might get like a positive review in the New York times, but then you're going to realize you weren't nominated for a national book award and that, or you might be nominated for a national book award, but then you might realize that like you weren't nominated for a Pulitzer and just like all of, these kind of brass rings you can grab for there, you know, it's never going to feel like enough. And I think to a degree that continues to be true for me with the release of that book. Mm -hmm. Is it true? I think I remember you saying that the book had been rejected 41 times prior to finally being bought. Yeah. So the book had been rejected 41 times and my agent gave up on sending it out anymore. Um, and then I sent it out myself to a small press and they took it. Um, and so I think in hindsight, it sounds like a very, like, I don't know, like a, like a magical story. Like, oh, like, you know, what a, what a great story of triumph and, you know, uh, resilience and over rejection. But at the time it was just hellish. It was awful. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about any of those stories, right? The like, and then, you know, I ate ramen for five years to make my whatever come true. Like that sounds really yeah. glorified. You know, it's easy to, you know, turn that story into some kind of like rags to riches story, right? Like afterwards. But when you're going through the thing, yeah, it's it's hell. Yeah, it was really awful. So I, I, I remain incredibly grateful to uh, Unnamed Press for picking that book up. What was it about you or about your feelings about this book that after, I mean, because 41 rejections is not nothing, your agent deciding not to send it out anymore, like that's sort of like another level of rejection. What was it that you said, no, I'm going to keep doing this? Like, how did that, what what was that? I think, so I think this goes along with another question that I often get asked, which is, how do you continue to persevere while living with a disabling chronic illness? And my answer to that and to this other question of why did I keep sending the book out or why did, yeah, why did I keep sending the book out is that deep down inside, I am just an incredibly stubborn person. Um, there's something about me that either has like, yeah, I, I think I'm just very stubborn in some ways. And 
in the case of the book, I just did not want to give up on it. There were so many reasons to give up on it. Um, I could have, I guess, kept um, just like moved on and started writing another book, which is what my agent wanted me to do. But I don't know. It's it's. I think it's a combination of stubbornness and also just a weird like trust in myself. Mm-hmm. I knew the book was good, and I still, um, I still like want to make sure that the book is good. Like I, you know, every couple of weeks I still go back and I skim it or I read a couple of chapters just to just to check and say like is this book good and yeah every time so far it's been like yeah this book is still good um but yeah it's like a combination of a belief in myself and also just this incredible stubbornness okay so that's fascinating that I can definitely imagine the feeling coming up of you know is this book really good is this book still good but I would assume that sort of the default way that most folks try to answer that question is reading reviews, like being really concerned about how the work is received. And I find it really interesting that your path is to go back to the work itself, which that brings up something else that I was curious about this idea of sort of how to create something and then let it go in the world. And of course, it's wonderful to get good reviews. But how do you like, how do you maintain some sense of balance with that? Like how concerned are you with other people's opinions, like of your work of this book? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So um, in terms of when a book comes out, there are a couple of different levels of, you know, uh, criticism or reviews that that will happen. So there's, to me, a difference between like a Goodreads review or an Amazon review versus like a review in a big publication um, versus like awards um, and things like that or like end of year lists. Um, and then all of those things are different from how I feel about the book when I'm going back to it and, you know, quote unquote, making sure it's still good. Um, for me, I, like I do care about what other people think about the book, but there is, um, I think like it all goes back to like this conviction I still have that it is a good book like I I I do go back and check to make sure I still think it's a good book but like deep down inside I do I do believe it's a good book and so that's what kind of bolsters me when I accidentally read like a two-star Amazon review um or you know read some kind of like mean Tumblr post about it or whatever (laughs) um Yeah. So I I think in that case, like my own opinion matters. And then when it comes to things like these kind of like bigger media sites or like these, um, these more kind of prestigious or elite uh, publications reviewing the book, like that does matter to me in a certain way too, in part because those are public and a lot of people purchase books based on what those reviews say. So that might matter to me a little bit more in a like sales slash career sense. Mm-hmm. But it, it is important that I myself still like the book. So you don't find that, you know, what any one person or publication says is so tied to your, I don't know, like self-esteem. That's what it sounds like, which sounds amazing. Like I bottle that. I would like to have that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
well, I, I just think there are certain things that are, um, that do mean a lot to me. And like, so the granted thing I think is probably the one that has made the biggest difference in the way that I see myself as a writer. And we've kind of like share what that is really quick. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So we've just kind of like danced around this uh, a little bit uh, up to this point in the conversation, but to, to kind of go over that for people who don't know. So, um, in April, uh, this publication called Granta, they're a literary journal that's been around for a long time in the UK. Um, every 10 years, so once a decade, they come out with a list of about 20 uh, writers under the age of 40 that they call the best of young American writers, or best of young American novelists, rather. And uh, this year, 2017, was the third time they'd done it. And past people who've been on the list are like, I don't know, like Jeffrey Eugenides and like Jonathan Franzen and like Sherman Alexi, like people like that um, who have gone on to have these like really amazing careers. And this year uh, I was on the list, which is really bonkers in some ways because uh, I've only had one novel out so far. Um, some of the other people on the list, like Lauren Groff, um, whose book Fates and Furies was Barack Obama's like favorite book of 2015. Um, like she's had, I think, four books out. Like uh, a lot of these other writers on the list had had much more, had been more prolific um, and had longer careers. But yeah, so I I was somehow on that list, and of course, with like any of these, and I was warned about this beforehand, um, before the list was announced, is like any of these lists are going to be very controversial. Uh, people were snarky, <laughs> um, you know, as you might expect. Um, people argue about who's on the list and who's left off the list. Um, it's also important to remember that it's not like Granta has like some monopoly over like being able to declare who is actually like the best young American novelists uh of the last 10 years, it's just a list that they come out with that happens to have a certain amount of weight depending on who you are. Mm -hmm. But for me, like I did feel very proud and excited about it. It was interesting too, because I think it mattered to me more than some other people on the list, just because my book came out with such a small publisher and it, it did not come out with like a big five publisher. It was, it did not receive a New York times book review. Um, very few people outside of like a certain circle knew of me or like had heard of me. Um, you know, having like articles come out about who was on the list this year was mostly like, and then this person who's very well known and this person who's very well known and this person who's very well known. And then this like Esme person, whoever she is <laughs> like. And so um, I think for me, it was really lovely to be on the list from, you know, my own sense of, of just like being happy and excited about having been chosen for something like that. But also because it meant that my book was going to get more attention than it had previously. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm interested in sort of the big pendulum swing between, you know, going from being essentially, you know, an unknown author having to take matters into your own hands, like you shared with the publication, to being named, you know, like you said, this best young American novelist, uh, what was it a year after the book came out, like it was really soon after. So I mean, I'm curious about a couple things, like one sort of how that felt or how it feels now. And then I'm also interested if you've had any um, mentors or guidance, like who do you look to as you navigate this new phase of your career? Yeah, like there, there was an incredible acceleration in my career in 2016. So my book came out as I said, in April. But then in June, I was announced as the Grey Wolf nonfiction prize winner, which was another thing that we haven't quite talked about yet. But so um, Grey Wolf has a nonfiction prize every year. And uh, like past winners of the prize have gone on to have fairly uh, successful careers. So like Leslie Jameson's The Empathy Exams is probably the book that has, that was a winner of that and was published by Grey Wolf that has had the most success. Um, Yeah, so I was announced as the winner in June. And so I knew that I would have a second book come out the like, not the following year, but the year after in 2018. So that was a big surprise. Um, And then in December, I was told by Granta that I had been selected as as somebody for their best of young American list, um, which was also really difficult because I found out in December and I had to sign an NDA saying I wouldn't tell anybody (laughs) until the list was announced in April, which was five months of just, I don't know, having to bite my tongue a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But yeah, so my career has weirdly accelerated a lot in a small amount of time. And so I think something you mentioned, which is mentorship, like I think that's been really important to me. Um, I have managed to form some mentorships and friendships that have been incredibly important in helping me navigate this world. So just like, you know, I get advice about things like what I post on Instagram um, or uh, just like, who I should and should not um, say yes to when I get invited to do certain things. Um, I've had to make decisions about being invited to literary festivals or whether or not to judge certain things, like judge certain contests. And, you know, I've been given much more opportunity since all of these things have happened. And it's, it's hard to navigate without having some kind of mentorship. So, that's been something that I've been really grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I, it's been it's been really wild. I'm curious what it actually looks like, like sort of the practical necessities of managing a literary career, right? Because I feel like everyone's impression is, you know, write a book, book gets published, people buy the book. Okay, the end, write another book. Like, but I know there's other stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Like, what have you found in the last year, sort of those like practical realities, like things that maybe people might not know or understand about building a literary career? Yeah, so there are all these things that happen before the book comes out that that people don't necessarily talk about a lot, like having to 
um, do like a million interviews or write essays. So this is a very bizarre thing that I, I, I really don't quite understand. But for debut novelists, it has become a thing or not even just debut novelists, like for any novelist, it has become important to uh, publish essays around the time your book comes out. And this makes very little sense to me because as a novelist, your whole thing is that you write fiction. Um, and But for some reason, you're expected to write nonfiction as promotion for your fiction thing. Um, so that's something that I've been helping my friends who are having debut books come out this year and next year. Um, I've been kind of talking to them about how to do this. Um, yeah, so there's having like a bunch of essays come out around the time of your book. And then after the book comes out, there's just so much. I mean, I feel fortunate in a way that I was already kind of doing the like online entrepreneurship thing before mm -hmm. my book came out because I was more used to self-promotion than a lot of debut novelists are. There's still this idea in the literary world, I think, that self-promotion is really gross and um, it, it like takes away from the purity of the work and all of this stuff. Um, there's almost this kind of like sellout mentality that's very, that's been around for a really long time. Um, but yeah, that is a part of it is like networking, especially if you don't live in New York where the literary world is really centered. Um, there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of making sure you, you have connections, especially um, if you have a book come out with a really small press and you don't have all these connections and your agent isn't like a huge hotshot or like your PR person isn't really well connected. Mm -hmm. It's been really amazing for me to see friends, to like up close see friends who have had very different publishing experiences because um, their books are coming out with like big five publishers and they received a huge like literary advance. Like it's normal for people like that to like have their publishers create like special stationery for them that is branded with their book to write thank you letters to booksellers and various other people that you interact with on tour. Like that's definitely not something that I had. Um, but yeah, there are all kinds of things like that. It's interesting that you mentioned the self-promotion thing, you know, and how it's can be thought of as gross, you know, or selling out or whatever. And I, I mean, I think that's true, probably not just in that field, but in a lot of fields. And yet it, what do I want to say? Um, so wait, okay. So it's like sort of sidebar. You're so excellent at it. My best friend, Jamie and I, it's funny, you come up in conversation about this topic literally all the time. Like you have no idea how much like we see you as the gold standard of someone who can oh promote themselves and it doesn't feel icky. Like there have definitely been people who I've unfollowed because just like the tone of their self-promotion is like, it's too desperate or it's too much or whatever reason it just, what, I, I don't know. And you unfollow someone for any reason that you unfollow them, right? It just like didn't feel good to me. And mm -hmm. for, I don't know what it is. It's like, we've tried to put our finger on it. Like we have had long conversations <laughs> about like, why is it that like, it's so fun to watch Esme promote her work? Like, I, I don't know the answer, but do you have an answer to that? Like, what is it about the way that you do it? That, like feels so good to the people. I don't know. It's, maybe that's a really good question, but like, do you, is there like a thought process? Is there any kind of a strategy? Like it just seems so genuine. And like you walk this really interesting line between being 
clearly proud of and secure of the work that you're doing, not this kind of like, oh, I made this thing. Hopefully you like it. Like that, that tone doesn't come across at all. It's like proud of the thing and yet also humble about the thing. I don't know. There's something you're doing that is like really works. Yeah. I mean, well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I, you know, I, I do think it is like, I try to be, um, I really try to be genuine when I'm promoting myself. And I think it also helps that, you know, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Like back in 2014 at the inaugural binder con, um, conference, which is a conference for women and non-gender conforming writers. Um, I taught a workshop called self-promotion without the sleaze. And so many people showed up because they, they really didn't, want to have to promote themselves. Um, a lot of them were really uncomfortable with social media, just like a lot of people were curious about the topic. And one of the things I said was that, like, it's, it's not, um, it really helps if you genuinely are, like, in the case of self-promotion on social media, it really helps if you're just genuinely involved in social media in the first place. Like, we all know the people who, like, hop on only when they have something to promote and then they kind of disappear. Um, or, like, their only tweets are to, like, promote their thing. Um, like, that feels very different from somebody who interacts with other people who promotes other people's things who you know talks about like I don't know what did I tweet about yesterday I tweeted about like hanging out in my hammock in the backyard and I think I shared like a photo of a butterfly that landed on the hammock like just like things it can't be all self-promotion and it can't be all um like even just promotion and it really helps if you promote other people's stuff too because Mm -hmm. it you know it's important to kind of build up this this goodwill in the community and and I just love also sharing things that I love like by other people that's that's a really great feeling well, I remember reading something that you said in an interview, I think it was relatively recently, and you that I wanted to ask more about. You said, I try to be a good literary citizen. What does that mean? <laughs> um, oh, gosh, like the topic of literary citizenship has been so big lately, I feel. I've never um, heard that term ever. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think there were like, uh, panels about that. There have been like panels about this in like literary conferences that I've been to and things like that. So i personally uh like feel like I'm not like the best example of a literary citizen like a great literary citizen like somebody that I think is like an amazing literary citizen is my friend Porachista Kapoor like she is like I don't know to me she is the pinnacle of literary citizen like excellent literary citizenship like she helps people um with like promotion of their books and she like is an amazing mentor to so many young writers and um I I think there are like a lot of components to literary citizenship so there's even like a political side to literary citizenship like good literary citizenship so to me like being a good literary citizen is not just sharing books by like cisgender white women for example like Mm -hmm. that's to me that's like not really being a great literary citizen um 
but other people have different definitions. So I, I think it's like important for my personal definition of good literary citizenship to like try to be diverse when I'm like, you know, like for example, I get invited now to uh, like give uh, like a little one, I'll, I'll be invited to like give a, like a 300 word thing about what I'm reading this summer. And like something that I try to think about is like, who is making up this list that I'm sharing? Like I try to like have some diversity in the, in the writers that I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just like being aware of the power of just any kind of platform. Exactly. And um and being aware of like issues going on in in the literary world too. So uh, something that's come up a lot lately is uh, unpaid internships, especially when it comes to like literary journals or media media sites. Um, so like talking about those things, I think, is also a part of literary citizenship. And as well as, like, just sharing what you're reading and um, supporting your friends who have books coming out and, you know, giving blurbs, uh, you know, things like that. There's a lot, I think. And I'm just beginning to learn about all these things and just beginning to even be asked to do these things because I'm still an emerging writer. But it's, you know, I'm kind of dipping my toe in the waters of all this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about being conscious of the recommendations that you're giving. I mean, of course, I'm assuming if you're recommending something, it's genuine, you really do love oh, it. Yeah, but totally. if you love 10 things, right, then it's just like being aware of the fact that what you choose matters and that people who love your work are going to look to you right in that take your recommendations like even so your newsletter is one of the very few that I still subscribe to and love and even when you have that section where you recommend you know like other articles right like links and stuff online Mm -hmm. I find myself more likely to read those than maybe like some other random thing that shit right like recommendations do matter Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so tell me about the book that you are currently working on so the book that I'm currently working on is called The Collected Schizophrenia as, and it's an essay collection about schizophrenia and assorted psychotic disorders that are related to schizophrenia. Um, it is the book that I won the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize for. When I won that prize, it was only like 100 pages of essays and definitely nowhere near what it will be when it's finished. But it, it's um it's something that I really hope uh, is going to be different from other books about schizophrenia and even different from other books about mental health disorders and mental illness even different how okay so in terms of books about schizophrenia like I feel like it's just such a challenge I've I've kind of you know, in doing research for this book, I've tried to look at as many books about schizophrenia as I possibly can. And there just isn't much out there written by people living with these disorders. So I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in 2013. Um, I had symptoms for years before that, but that was when I was officially diagnosed. And I think in part because schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, uh, there are a lot of factors involved. Um, There's like factors of like 
how there are people who are more high functioning versus more like quote unquote low functioning. Um, there's the difficulty of writing about uh, schizophrenia. So, you know, a lot of people are afraid of the stigma or like are nervous about the impact it might have on their lives and so won't want to write a book about it um, in which they come out as having these disorders. There's also just the the like very technical, um, like skill-based art of writing about these things. So like, how do you write about the actual like feeling of having a delusion or how do you write about experiencing a psychotic hallucination in a way that makes sense to someone who has never experienced this before. Mm -hmm. So are they first person sort of like memoir narrative essays? Is it a mix of sort of formats in the essays? Yeah. So um, some of them are fairly personal. I think probably the most personal essay in there is one called Perdition Days, which came out um, on the toast back in, I think, 2014. And so that one is almost completely just like a straight out personal essay. And then the one that maybe the other essays are more like, I think, is one called Toward a Pathology of the Possessed, which came out in The Believer and um, is more about uh, like more incorporates like history and uh, pop culture and um, like sociocultural factors as well as my own experience. But my own experience kind of more peppers uh, the essays as opposed to being a memoir. I definitely would not describe this book as a memoir Mm -hmm. or even like being close to a memoir. I remember reading, I think it was for BuzzFeed, correct me if I'm wrong, but the essay yeah. that you wrote um, called Who Gets to Be the Good Schizophrenic, I think that was for yeah. BuzzFeed. Yeah, that was for BuzzFeed. And it brought up something that I thought was so interesting and that maybe I hadn't thought about you know, as much uh, consciously before was this idea of psychiatric hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, so will you talk about that a little bit? I know you just mentioned you know, the trouble with you know, writing first-person narratives about you know. Uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder is the stigma around it and this idea that it's a different stigma potentially than other mental illness. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited and glad to see people writing more about things like eating disorders or anxiety disorders or depression. Like, I think it's great that all those things are being written about. But I like something that I wrote about in that BuzzFeed essay that I think isn't a good example of this maybe is uh a Facebook meme that I saw go around a number of years ago. And it was about like, I can't even remember like what the title was. It was something like the positive aspects to different mental illnesses. And for uh, like depression, it was something like depression helps people become more sensitive to, uh, to pain and more compassionate or something or like um, OCD helps people pay attention to detail. And I knew that when I started looking at this thing that there was not going to be anything about schizophrenia. Um, Just because we don't tend to think of schizophrenia or any related disorders as having any kind of positive aspect to it. It's something that is burdensome to caregivers. It's something that is frightening. It's something that's associated more strongly with 
violent, uh, like violent acts, you know, like I always kind of hold my breath when there's a shooting or something because I'm afraid they're going to make a big deal out of, you know, whether or not the person like has or has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's just a lot of, um, of stigma and a lot of fear around schizophrenia and assorted disorders. Does that inform your desire for this book? Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's even interesting to me when I interact with people and I kind of disclose my diagnosis. Like it's really interesting to me to see what people say to me. (laughs) Like when I, like there have been times when I've been in at like fancy parties where I was like, like fancy literary parties where I was like one of the guests of honor. And I remember I was talking to somebody and, um, and, and they didn't know what my book was about. Um, this like forthcoming book was about. And I, they asked me and then I, I said a little bit about it and then they they were like, wow, well, you know, I just want to let you know that you're very, you're very eloquent. You sound, you sound completely like a normal person or something like that. Mm. And I, you know, like, what are you going to say? Just like, thanks. So something that I've been thinking about, and that's definitely been sort of weighing on me lately that I have no answers for, but I'm definitely interested in your opinion. I've been thinking about the fact that I think overall, culturally, I mean, especially in this country, we're becoming more comfortable with mental illness Maybe, you know, then however many years ago, but I feel like we're more comfortable with it at a distance, like talking about it, labeling it, saying things like, you know, depression is, is an illness like anything else. You know, the things that we that we say, right, that like make it more OK and less, you know, with less stigma. And yet I still feel like there's a huge gap or a huge disparity and we're still wildly uncomfortable with the reality of a person experiencing and exhibiting anything outside the realm of accepted high functioning behaviors like in real time. I think it's one thing to say you know, I have a mood disorder. I struggle with this. I was having a depressive episode, right? Talking about it sort of afterwards as it's like wrapped up in some kind of a bow or we have some distance. I feel like overall people are more okay with that. Maybe, you know, less so like you said with schizophrenia, but just in general. But I still feel like there's a huge gap between that and like knowing what to do or how to react or sort of be in the reality of a person who's experiencing anything outside of that like narrow box. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of times really serious mental illness, like regardless of the diagnosis, is not particularly pretty. Like it can be very ugly. Um, It can be really hard to deal with. Um, I was actually just reading somebody's tweets about the movie Melancholia. Did you ever see that movie? No. Um, it, It was it's a I think a Lars von Trier movie starring Kirsten Dunst. But I also feel like it is probably the best depiction of depression I've ever seen in a movie. Um, there's, uh, there's just all, all of these really, uh, it, to my mind, like amazing scenes of Kirsten Dunst, like not being able to like take a bath by herself or like not being able to eat. Um, and I think it's the closest I've seen in a movie to like how, like, I just keep thinking of the word ugly, like how ugly depression can be as opposed to this like romantic, uh, like romantic in a Byronic way, but also like romantic in a like 
swoon like here's something really um almost like beautiful and it's like hot topic gothness Mm -hmm. um but yeah there's a lot of um a lot of more difficult aspects to these disorders that are harder for people to accept and to be around and it really and that is why to me a lot of the people that I appreciate the most are people who were there for me when I was experiencing a really severe period of psychotic episodes um I think that was uh yeah that remains something that was is very important to me mm-hmm. those friendships I mean I think about you know on this topic sort of what it takes to close that gap between saying yes we should speak out about these things and there's no stigma versus like like you said sort of the ugly lived experience and I even look at my own role in that of you know while I'm going through something that is hard and ugly, my tendency is definitely not to reach out or not to be open. Like, I think I still have that sort of internalized, don't be a burden, you know, wait until you're at a more high functioning level. Um, I don't know. I I don't, there's no question even associated with this, but I just, I am always curious of like, okay, well, how do we close that gap? And like, how do we, (laughs) how do we, how do we do that? Are you talking about um, to people in your own life or are you talking about like on social media? I think both. Yeah. Um, do you find one more difficult than the other? Um, that's a good question. It's, I mean, it's not the completely not talking to anyone, right? Like that's, that's not what I'm saying, but I more mean that I think even I, as someone who believes and wants there to be less stigma, right? Like that's how I feel from my sort of like highbrow place in the mess of something being ugly. I still find that it's very difficult to, just like let other people be a part of that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that that, you know, like that has to change before other things can change. Like there's obviously a lot of different layers to this, but, you know, how do we get from the point where, you know, we can't just tell these stories like in retrospect when we're quote like better, right? Or, you know, getting to the point of, you know, even in that article that you wrote, the thing that really resonated with me was when you were saying, um, this wasn't exactly what you said, but sort of verbatim, well, at least I'm not, I'm not as bad as that person, or it's not as bad for me as it is for that person. Even that sort of like drawing lines between, well, I'm not that depressed, or I'm not that, you know, fill in the blank here, that there's something in that that probably isn't serving us. Yeah, I mean, yes, the psychiatric hierarchy is something that exists within disorders as well. And that's something that I'm very aware of, as I'm writing this book, because I am, I'm very, aware of the fact that I'm writing a book about schizophrenia that many people who live with schizophrenia would not be able to write. Um, And I don't know what that means to feel like I'm speaking for a population, a certain population, or Mm. um, I don't, you know, I think that I, I wish that people were more able to share their stories. But at the same time, um, it does take like a certain amount of like, quote unquote, like high functioning ability to be able to write a book. So um, yeah, these are things that I think about a lot, especially with schizophrenia, which is such a, which can be such a disabling illness. Do you have any, I don't know, pressure, maybe pressure is not the right word, but what are your feelings of uh, with this book no longer being an unknown writer? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. This, this to me is like terrifying. So I'm in kind of the home stretch right now with this book and not being an unknown with this book makes my makes the resistance of working on this book every day just so much more intense than it has been in the past. I mean, while I've been working on this book, I've had like, here's just like an example of an experience I had. I was in the middle of basically nowhere in this small town in upstate New York. And I, um, I went and had dinner by myself at this tavern. And while I was sitting there, just like having a drink and like waiting for my food, this woman came up to me and she was talking to me about my work and, you know, well, asked me if I was me. And I said, yes. And then, um, and she just was talking about how much she was looking forward to my book um, about schizophrenia. And I, was so amazed by that encounter because I, you know, that never would have happened like even a year before. Um, but also it meant that this person was like expressing to me that they were looking forward to this book that hadn't been finished yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that like, you know, that I was still writing and I've had that happen to me um, at various events since then, you know, just like, I think, I'm very grateful that people are looking forward to this book. And I'm, I love that people are sharing with me that they're looking forward to it, but it's also really scary. Um, before there was nobody waiting for my book. Nobody knew I was writing it really, except for the people close to me. Um, I had as much time as I wanted to work on that book. Um, but with this one, there are people, there was like a press release that came out about what the book what the book's topic was once the Grey Wolf nonfiction prize was announced and then since then people have been talking to me about it and being encouraging and being excited about the book but it's also very scary mm -hmm. for me <laughs> what does your writing process look like this time around or I guess like in what ways is it different maybe than than with the other book it is so, so, so different. And it's mostly different because of um, becoming really physically ill. So I became like weirdly, weirdly physically ill in about 2012 or 2013 was when it was really getting bad. Um, and then in 2015, I was diagnosed with late stage Lyme disease. And at that point, it was like I had days where I couldn't really swallow. There were lots of days where I couldn't really walk or like lift my arms or like speak a full sentence or I would be saying a sentence and then just kind of like lose the rest of the sentence because I was having so many cognitive issues. And even with that diagnosis, it's just been this long medical long, arduous medical journey since then. Um, I've seen like a million doctors. I just saw a cardiologist last week. I um, There's so much has changed. And I think the biggest thing that's changed probably is just like a lack of strength, like a lack of physical strength. So like I deal with a lot of chronic fatigue and I 
find it very hard to sit for long periods of time. Um, and when I say a long period of time, I basically mean like anything longer than half an hour. Um, so one thing that's really changed is that most of this book has been written while lying down, um, tapping on my phone. Um, which like when I say that seems bizarre, but, um, because I can't like really sit and type on a laptop the way I did when I was writing my first book. Um, it's really, I've really had to come up with workarounds. And one of those workarounds is writing on my phone. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know that you've done, you know, what I would consider a lot, I don't know what, it's, I guess that's arbitrary, but a lot of sort of publicity events and readings. And like you said, panels, like all these things, you know, in the last year, or year plus, whatever. And uh, how do you, what's my question? How do you manage that sort of like the physical and mental limitations that you didn't have maybe when you were working on the first book, but that are at play in terms of promoting that book and, you know, the second book, and also obviously not just managing a literary career, but, you know, your online business as well, right? Like you have, you're incredibly prolific and have a lot of balls in the air, but I guess I'm curious about what it looks like for you to make the tough choices of what to say yes to, when to push and when not to, maybe some examples of like how prioritization works for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like that was like 10 questions. Right. I'm sorry. Or at least, (laughs) no. um, It just means that I have a lot to say about this topic. So, um, excuse me. Uh, So, I think somebody who's been an incredible mentor for me in this regard is uh, Porchista, my friend that I mentioned earlier. Um, Because she also, we, we became friends because we both have late stage Lyme disease. And so, something that I've learned from her is just kind of like watching when she pushes and when she doesn't. Um, I think she tends more toward pushing than I do. But for example, um, just as an example of something that shows that I do deal with this every single day, like this morning I had a mastermind call at noon and then I had, have had this call with you at one 30 and the mastermind call was going to end at one. So I had given myself half an hour to try and recuperate between the two. And so this morning, I was relatively okay, but then started feeling really sick. And then I had to start thinking about like, okay, am I going to do the mastermind call? Am I going to try to do that? And also do this podcast interview that I know is going to be two hours long. Um, or will I cancel the mastermind call and do the podcast interview? Or will I cancel both of them? And if I, you know, and what is going to impact how I make this decision or make these decisions, right? So like, um, am I going to try to do stuff like, um, like take more of like a certain kind of medication to alter like these symptoms? Or will I do something like just like drink more water or like even like try to take a nap? Um, so there's just a lot of like contemplation and juggling like in real time as the day is going on while I'm trying to figure out these things. So what I ended up doing was uh, like 20 minutes before the mastermind call, like going into our Slack group and saying, I'm sorry, like I'm, I'm not going to be able to make this call today. 
um, because I'm not feeling well. Um, at the same time, I just realized as I was posting that, that one other member of the group had also posted saying she wasn't going to be able to make it. So it, it turned out okay in the end, but I had already made that decision. So I had decided that I wasn't going to be able to make the call, but was going to do my best to make this podcast interview. Mm-hmm. And and so that's just an example of like how a day might look for me. Well, and I, I think that, you know, it's one thing, let's say um, if we're talking about someone who is mostly healthy, right, is not dealing with anything that's chronic, you know, and they get really sick, or they have the flu or a stomach bug or something. I feel like it's a a relatively, or I think about myself in the past in those situations, it's relatively simple and, you know, not agonizing decisions, just cancel stuff. Like you're really sick. It's like the one time every year or two that you have a fever, or you're throwing up or, you know, everyone understands. But what it's more, I don't know, nuanced, and I assume complex when, as you said, like this is a virtually a daily thing, right? So it's not as simple as anytime I don't feel well, I'm going to cancel things, right? Because what, like, what do it's like, what do you do? And that's not an option, which obviously I know like a lot of your work revolves around this, right? Like helping ambitious people with limitations of different kinds. But yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah. And it also means that your definition of what feeling sick is, is like really shifts. So For me, I still have days where I'm very acutely ill. So like on those days, I cannot function at all. Like I just, I can't, it's like, I can't like even trying, you know, I need help to like answer an email on like a really bad day. Um, But this kind of like day to day illness that I deal with probably for like a quote unquote, like healthy person would feel like a, like some pretty bad illness. Um, so I think in that regard, like just your, my baseline has shifted, um, in terms of, uh, like just trying to decide. So, okay. So like, I was just giving the example of what happened today and both of these things, like the mastermind call and, uh, doing this podcast interview were like things that could have been rescheduled. Like it would have been a little tough. Um, and, and there would have been some like sacrifice and I really don't like having to reschedule or cancel, but, um, it's different when it comes to like an event that, uh, like has been planned for months in advance that I'm supposed to show up at. And I'm like one of three people that's like reading that night. And I had like travel to like New York to do this thing, you know, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, like it's, it's very different, um, in that case. And for those things, it is very much a case of just like so far in my life anyway, just really pushing through. Like I've done events where I was like feverish and sweating profusely and like incredibly nauseated and dizzy and sick and like really using my cane a lot. Um, and like still doing a reading because, because like what else, you know, cause I've just made the decision that I need to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is something obviously that you're really open about on basically a daily basis, you know, on social media and other places that, you know, you write and share really regularly. Do you feel like that's, I mean, I would assume that you wouldn't do it if it wasn't helpful, but I feel like it's almost helpful if there's like that 
expectation, right? That people know it's not like coming out of left field that maybe this might be a hard day or that this is something that you're pushing through. Or I I guess like, how do you think about your relationship with deciding to share these things in real time, you know, with sort of your work and career? Yeah, it's kind of tough because it it, it is a balance because I worry sometimes that being really open about chronic illness means that I'm invited to fewer things. Mm. You know, like people might think, oh, she's not well enough to do this thing that I I might have otherwise invited her to do. On the other hand, it's really helpful to be able to go to an event. And if I'm not if I'm really not feeling well to say at the beginning of the reading, like, hey, I'm so glad to be here. I'm really excited to see you all. Just wanted to, like, give you a heads up that I'm not feeling that great right now. Um, But I'm going to give this my best. (laughs) you know, like there's, it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. What would you say your intention is behind sharing, you know, this aspect of your life so publicly in real time? Like why? Uh, It's just like, okay, well, first of all, I just have a really bad poker face. I mean, that just might be like the biggest reason. I mean, a lot of it has to do with like wanting people to understand that like illness is a thing and, you know, disability is a thing. And, you know, to make this less of a, I don't know how to, what I would call it, like less of a less of something to be ashamed of or like less of something that you don't see. So then, you know, hopefully other people, can, I don't know, who are dealing with these things can feel like maybe they can do certain things um, because they uh, see that, like, I'm really open about it. So maybe they can be really open about it, too. So mm-hmm. there's definitely that. But, like, there's also definitely the fact that, like, I'm just really bad at having a poker face and lying about feeling good if I'm not feeling good. Or, like, I, I would find it very hard to – I mean, I did make a decision – like years ago to come out about having mental illness, but mental illness issues. But after that, like it was just kind of, you know, I'm just going to be as open about what I feel comfortable being open about as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can completely relate to that. Like, I don't know how to not do that. <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the recent ebook that you put together about productive journaling with limitations. Can you talk about that? Maybe share one of the specific things from that? Because um, as you know, I'm and I mentioned this last time you were on the show, such a huge fan of all of the journaling photos and snippets and things that you post. So when you put this all together in one place, I was very excited. Yeah, so it's um, this little ebook called Productivity Journaling with Limitations, The Morning Ritual. And I put it together mostly because I was getting a lot of questions from people on my Instagram where I post a lot of photos of my planner um, and my journal. Like a lot of people asking, what what is the system that you use and how does this help you um, in terms of like dealing with chronic illness? For example, something that I see a lot when I read productivity stuff is like write down your schedule and like plan every hour based on the things you need to get done. Well, this is basically impossible if you're dealing with chronic illness. Like it's just too hard to know how you're going to feel from hour to hour. And if you are lucky enough um, to have a certain amount of flexibility, it's much 
healthier, in my opinion, to be able to um, like work on something like in an hour where you're feeling more like cognitively together than when you're not or, you know, things like that. Like certain things, yeah, they're scheduled like meetings or these readings that I talk about or whatever. But um, so uh, so that's one thing about my planning system or like productivity journaling, whatever you want to call it, is it's not based on like a hard and fast hour by hour. This is how your day is going to go kind of thing. Um, and in terms of just like the morning part of it, I, I happen to do best in the morning. So, um, I do say in the ebook to, um, to like make changes as works for you. And and that's the thing that I've really loved is I came up with a hashtag for, uh, the, the system and I've gotten to see on like Instagram and Twitter the ways in which people have adjusted this to fit them and to, to help uh, their own planning system, which has been great and so much fun. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of like one thing. Okay. So like one thing that I like to share is what I call the things I did today list. I find that especially for ambitious people who are dealing with chronic illness, especially if you've just been diagnosed or you're just starting to deal with having symptoms that you didn't used to have, it can be really easy to become super focused on what you're not getting done or just like making a to-do list of a million things and then getting really frustrated because you only got like one thing done. I think for me, as I've developed this planner slash productivity journal system like it's been really helpful for me to keep records of what I have done and that can look like writing down what I've done from like half hour to half hour in my in my planner but it also looks like keeping the things I did today list so the way that I teach people to do it is to say like to write a little sentence that goes like I did blank and it helped me to achieve blank. So I really, really, really encourage people to make these lists like as exhaustive as possible. So like, I think for a lot of people, like feeding your feeding your dog would seem like a really minor thing and not even worth recording. But for so many people with chronic illness, like actually taking all the steps to like feed your dog is actually a really big deal where there can be days where doing that being able to do that is like such an amazing accomplishment so I really encourage people to just write down everything that you've accomplished like no matter how small you think it is and once you've finished the day or you know whenever you you decide to end this list like it's really wonderful to be able to see like how much you actually have done. And this is something that's just so helpful to me on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so even the small things. One of the things that I loved about that tactic that you shared wasn't just the idea of you know writing down the list, which I think we talked about on the last episode, but um, this idea of sort of going the extra step to say why, or you know, like I did mm-hmm. this and it accomplished you know, whatever the wording is. 
I think that so often for me, I mean, I can get really stuck in productivity, anxiety, or obsession with busyness, or just like checking things off a list. And I develop a disconnect between the things that I'm doing and why I'm doing them. And even just being able to, okay, I fed my cats and it, you know what I mean? And, and because then it achieved this, you know, or whatever with each of these different things, or even something as simple as, you know, I invited a friend to dinner and, you know, to, to look at that as a reflection of, you know, putting into a relationship that I value or I know something that almost sounds silly, but going that extra step of like answering the why has also been helpful ever since, you know, I I saw you share it, not just for the things that I do feel good about, but it's also shown me the things that I'm doing, like just for the sake of doing them when I don't really have a good, it didn't really accomplish anything. And I'm like, oh, wait, I actually don't have to do that anymore. Or that's not a good, (laughs) like it's helped me to think a little bit more critically about how I'm, I guess, like choosing to spend my time and energy. Yeah, yeah. I it, it continues to be something that is helpful to me. Um and also just realizing having even just writing down like one main thing that I want to get done that day. Like even if I don't get it done because not all days are days where you can, but like I feel like it's very easy to list like a bazillion things that you want to get done in a day. And having like one key thing to focus on can be really helpful. Yeah, I think so too. And I also think that it helps to, again, sort of like cut through your own bullshit of like these things are, these 20 things are all equally important. Well, if you're honest Mm -hmm. with yourself, no, they're not. Like what's the actual thing that's the most important? Maybe it's not the most urgent, but the most important. And I find that sometimes to be difficult, but it's a good practice to be like, you know, my internal chatter is, well, I can't just pick one thing. I have to do all these things. Who am I if only get one thing done today? Like there's just like, I think that's pretty common self-talk, right? But yeah, um, yeah so I, I appreciate that about the resource that you created. Thank you. So other than what we have discussed, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or anything else that is on your mind and you find yourself thinking about a lot these days? Hmm. Wow, I feel like we've had like a pretty exhaustive conversation. (laughs) Um, What am I thinking about these days? I don't know. I think I'm thinking a lot about like all the things we talked about. Um, Productivity anxiety is a big one, I think, and which which you just mentioned. And I that's something that I tend to write about on my blog a lot. Um, And I oh, yeah. And I I wrote about it for L magazine as well. yeah, uh, other than that, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy, uh, like, my days as much as possible, um, even if they're hard, you know? Like, yesterday, I got to spend time in the hammock, as I mentioned, and it was really wonderful. And then, uh, like, halfway through the day, I started feeling really nauseated and dizzy and was having really bad chills. And after like a couple hours of feeling sick, I was frustrated and, you know, kind of grumpy. But I also was able to remember that I did get to spend time in the hammock and it was really nice. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'd taken pictures of it and, you know, a butterfly landed on the hammock. Like, come on. So, 
<laughs> so, yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, I, there's so much more that I could say in response to that, but I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. And the way that we end these, you might remember from last time, are with a series of uh, what we call community questions. So mm-hmm. it's nine sort of rapid fiery ish questions that the Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast, um, want me to ask all of our eight guests this season if you're down for some random questions. Yes. So um, I know you mentioned being best in the mornings, and I know there's a lot of focus in general on morning routines, but can you share what your evenings look like? How do you typically spend your evenings? I typically spend my evenings winding down by looking at Pinterest in bed. That sounds like a fun answer. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I could totally imagine you doing that. Oh, man. Yeah. What do you most want to be known for? Oh, my gosh. Um... I most want to be known for, I think I'm just going to cheat and say like, I most want to be known for being a kind person and a brilliant writer. I don't think that's cheating. (laughs) (laughs) I think you only wanted me to pick one thing. No, you can, you can, you can pick, there's no rules to this, right? You could, you could pick 10 things. Um, What's the last thing that made you feel totally awestruck? A moment that stopped you in your tracks and left you at a loss for words, but in an awesome way. I, this actually happens every day, but I think that's really wonderful. Um, Is I make sure to stop and completely focus if a hummingbird comes to the feeder and just like watch the hummingbird for as long as it's there until it leaves. And I'm always awestruck by that. Hmm. This ever since this question was put forth by someone in the community, and obviously this is the last episode that I'm recording this this season. And so I've asked it right now like eight times. And it's made me realize how much like feeling awestruck or just grateful or any, you know, any of those things is almost a practice that you can develop just like being more open to it and being less cynical and being willing to take those moments of pause and, you know, look at the hummingbird. I don't know that there's a lot that we can do to cultivate feeling that way. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. So if you were given an unlimited or just like a large amount of money to try and fix one problem in the world, which problem would you choose? And what's one thing you would do? Oh my gosh, this is so hard. Um, I think like a lot of social justice issues have been on my mind since uh, since this year and post-election. Unfortunately, like having been asked this question, it's really hard for me to come up with like one thing that I think like a million dollars or however much you said would like really solve it. Then also like what one concrete thing I would want to do with that. So, so I'm going to go back to something that has been on my mind um, since before uh, the election and like, um, which is the issue of like not having, uh, there's not kind of a best practices for colleges and universities in terms of how they treat their students with mental health issues. Mm. Um, And this has been something that I've been interested in since I was in college. Um, There is kind of a think tank that deals with some of these issues, but I'd either want to kind of start my own organization or think tank to work on this issue. 
Um, and I think like the first step I'd want to do is to like assemble a group of people who have expertise in this area mm-hmm. and see what we could do about yeah, it. Yeah, to move beyond the, like, every student gets 10 counseling sessions, but that's <laughs> the extent of it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, and also just, like, how do you decide when a student, like, has to leave? Or, you know, how do you decide when, how it, whether a student gets to come back? Um, how do you decide if a student needs to be involuntarily hospitalized? There are just so many issues, I feel like, that are related to this. Yeah. What's one of the best gifts you've received? Um, one of the best gifts I received was from my friend Anna and, um, this was many years ago, but I, it just like, I always remember it. Um, she made me a cookbook and, um, she hand wrote the whole cookbook. It was just like a cookbook of recipes that she liked. And a lot of them she had invented, but each recipe had like a personal story in it. And, um, she also like with each step of the um, recipe would include like little little messages or like cute tips, you know, make sure to cover the oatmeal, stuff like that. Um, and I, I just, it was one of the most thoughtful gifts I've ever gotten. Yeah, it sounds like it. What's one habit that you have been successful at adopting over the past few years that you're proud of? I... Um, a habit that I've been proud of adopting. Um, I have a habit of wishing like a special good morning to everybody on Twitter. (laughs) Um, And I thought it was just kind of like a silly whimsical thing um, when I started doing it, but I've actually met like a not insignificant amount of people who have like come up to me at events and told me that my good mornings on Twitter mean a lot to them. So isn't it funny, the things that, that seem small <laughs> to you or that you don't know wind up having a big impact? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're one of my favorite people to follow on social media, and I think everyone should follow you. So that's <laughs> no surprise. Um, what would you say is one of your biggest fears? Um, despair. I'm really afraid of despair. Of feeling it, you mean? Yeah. Hmm. So the next question is about books, which is probably a hard question to ask, right? You, as we already talked about book (laughs) recommendations, but are there any books, um, I know that you, I think you answered this the first time you were on the show too, but that have had a really big impact on you, maybe let's say lately, or that you really recommend or find yourself rereading? I can't remember what book I said last time, but... um, a book that I have been returning to lately is Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm, I still uh, haven't read that. <laughs> yeah, by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Like, it's, I find it very um, comforting. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, that's one of those things, you know, you hear it mentioned over and over again, and you just still haven't gotten it together to do some, this might, this might be the push, like, okay, Nicole, I actually buy this book. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Um, call your representatives about the AHCA. <laughs> I don't know when this is going up, um, but 
calling your representatives about things you care about is actually just a good practice in general. Yes, I love it. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? I am, as we've probably mentioned, pretty active on social media. So I'm available at Esme Wang on Twitter, at Esme W. Wang on Instagram. And I also have two websites. One is EsmeWang.com, which is more just my literary website. And you can find out about my books there and things like that. And then the website that is resources for ambitious people living with limitations is TheUnexpectedShape.com. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really wonderful. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Renee. Hi, Renee. Hey, Nicole. So we're going to do some rapid-fire questions so I can learn all of the things about you. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm so ready. How do you usually spend the first hour of your day? Oh, love this. Uh, Get up and I meditate. I use the um, Insight Timer, I think, app it's called, and it's free and it's it's really cool. So I do that, and then um, I drink some water, and I have just a little snacky snack, and I journal for a page, and then um, I have my coffee. So I have to have the water and the food first, or it wreaks havoc on my whole day. So um, then, because I'm starting a, a side business, I try to devote a cup hour or two to that, and then I get dressed and I go to my day job. I love it. Look at all the things you pack into your morning before your job. <laughs> I know. I know. It's great. Love mornings. You must be an early riser. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, me too. Um, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, so many things. <laughs> um, it is. It's hard to It's hard to pin them down. I'm really into some... Um, I've been doing a ton of reading, but music is really... It's always been my passion. And for many years, I was a single parent. I didn't have a lot of extra money, so I didn't go to many concerts. But now my kids are out of the house. I'm an empty nester, which is amazing, by the way. (laughs) And uh, so I've gone to probably seven concerts so far this year, and I have some more. I'm even going to one alone, which is, like, huge for me. Huge. So I think live music is what I'm obsessed with. I keep hearing about new concerts, and it's like, should I go? Do I know anyone that would want to go with me? Well doesn't matter go anyway yeah I love that the doing things alone too sometimes I there's like certain things that I'm fine doing alone and then so like it's funny how arbitrary it is the things that I hesitate you know like Uh I'm not going to go to a nice restaurant alone or I'm not but like it's all just I don't know there's something I think that can be really empowering to be like no I want to do this thing so I'm going to take myself regardless of whether anyone else wants to go that's awesome good for you yeah because the flip side of that is if you're at a restaurant and you see a woman eating alone you're like she's cool yeah, I love that. Totally, right? right? I mean, I, that's what I think. And I guess yep. like my hesitation is what are people going to think? Like, I'm lonely. I wanna, but who cares what people think? I want to eat this food. Exactly. No one could come. You know, whatever. <laughs> right. right. Um, what's the strangest or most random job that you've ever had? Um, wow. I uh, Maybe it's when I, I sold T-shirts at the – I grew up in Iowa at the Iowa Girls uh, High School Softball Tournament. 
Yeah, that's random. And I was probably 13, and I didn't know what I was doing. I'd probably be lucky if I counted back change, right? But it was at the ballpark, and it was in my hometown, and um, I had some connection there somehow. My dad was a sports writer, so probably that. But I just remember sitting in this hot sun, all these boxes of different sizes of T-shirts, and I felt pretty cool doing that, got to admit. I love it. Um, (laughs) If you have a free afternoon all to yourself, what's your favorite way to spend it? Oh, well, I probably listen to your podcast <laughs> while uh, cleaning or going for a walk. Um, and then I would definitely read. I might hit up my best friend and see if she wants to go. And We, we walk a lot with her dogs. But, um, yeah, I, do, I would like to do a mix of things. I do some writing. I do some reading. I do some listening. So, Yeah. Yeah, while walking or cleaning or driving. Those are the times that I listen to podcasts, too. That's usually my uh, thing. Um, You mentioned reading. Anything lately that you've been like, this is amazing. You should read this. Well, right now I'm reading um, Give a Girl a Knife. And it's by Amy Thielen. And she's from Minnesota, where where I am. And um, she's had a very storied career in New York, working in a lot of great restaurants. Don't ask me to name any of them. But um, she's an excellent writer. And it's, it's so great. To, to read someone who can really tell a story. It's kind of her memoir. Um, she's fascinating. I love her. That sounds like something I would totally be interested in, in case I need more yeah. books to add to my list, right? Oh, my yeah. gosh. I know. Um, I know. What's one thing that you wish more people were open and honest about? Ah, love this question. I would say, um, I know Sarah Von Bargen, who lives here in Twin Cities. I don't know her, but I know your connection with her, and she talks about this. It's like, being open about money Mm -hmm. and I still can't figure out why it's become this whole big hush hush like who makes how much and uh because I a parade magazine which is this weird little thing that comes in the Sunday paper they do an annual thing where they publish people's salaries from across the country and it's the most fascinating thing you can't believe that certain people don't make very much money and they have a very respectable honorable job but then other people it's like why are you paid you know three times as much but yeah yeah, I think money, because I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with that, too, in the sense of the psychology between or behind why we spend and how we spend and how we save um, and all that. Yeah, she's great. And I agree with you on wanting a lot more honesty around money, too. That's something that I'm sure will continue to come up on the podcast, because basically I'm like obsessed with it. all I want to do is like talk about money and sex and mental health. Like, that's it. So just anyone <laughs> yeah. wants to talk about those things. Oh, man. Um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a small and powerful pledge to help fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what's been your favorite thing since joining our community? Um, I, the reason I did it is is what I've heard other members say. It's it's like you put, like to put your money where your values are, and I think what you're putting out is, is just such tremendous content in so many ways, and even sometimes I, I'll be listening, I'll be like, okay, who's this person, what's their topic, and, and it might be like, you know, you're running, one of your running people. I'm not a runner, but the interviews are so dang good, you know, because running is only one part of what they do. And then you have the whole other aspect of the personality. And I always glean so much wisdom from the interviews. And if I can support that and keep that going, I'm all for it. You know, it's kind of like the whole Netflix thing, right? I, I don't want to watch random network TV, but give me Netflix where I put a little money towards it and I get some excellent content. 
I that's really a good value. I forgot the other question, Nicole. Sorry. Uh, oh no, just <laughs> <laughs> thank you by the way for everything you just said. Um, I'm just curious what your favorite thing's been since joining the community. Oh, I love all the bonus stuff. I mean, that's just like Christmas, you know. When I first joined in, it was here's the password, and then there's all those extra interviews in there. And I loved um, the Melissa Casera one because I work in PR as well, and Sarah Von Bargan, of course, is um, is fantastic on all levels. So, and then some of the also the the member interviews that are on there. I haven't even gone through everything yet, you know. But I, it's just it feels it's a really nice nice feature. Um, to, to be a member and then have these extra things thrown at you because I wasn't even expecting anything else. It was, I'm happy to make this, you know, small contribution. And then it's like, oh, wow, I get presents. Yes, like, you like, do get presents. You know, Here's 40 hours of extra stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's like clinic gift with purchase, you know? <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love it. Um, and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of fun opportunities like this, like doing outros, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 